before we begin this episode, we would like to say that in the spirit of reconciliation, that we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome back to another episode of Spectification. I'm the artist formerly known as the Drunk Astronomer and now known as Astropunk. And I'm Astro Steffi. Today we have with us Professor Fred Watson. Formerly known as <laughs> Astronomer at Lama. Oh, uh, Fred Watson is an English-born astronomer, popular scientist in Australia, uh, Fred holds the role of Australia's first astronomer at large with the Commonwealth Government of Australia and relay, relays important aspects of astron- Australian astronomy to the government, the general public and associated organisations. Uh, in 1995, Fred became astronomer in charge of the Australian Astronomical Observatory, but he's best known for his work with science outreach. Fred has written many books as well as musical and choral works on top of his many nationwide radio slots with the ABC uh, Fred has also been a frequent guest on the project. In January 2010, Fred was made a member of the Order of Australia for Service to Astronomy, particularly the promotion and popularisation of space science through public outreach. Uh, that, however, is a small amount of amount of what Fred has accomplished in his life, and he is with us today to share with us more on his life in the field of astronomy and his thoughts on where astronomy is going. Welcome to the podcast, Fred. It is a great pleasure, Mark uh, and Steffi. It's, it's lovely to meet you and to be with you on screen, uh, Mark and I have met before, of course, but um, yeah, that's yes. a different matter. Yeah, you um, <laughs> you talk about that. You took the piss out of me on um, in front of lots of people, but that's all right. I'm, I'm, I mean, so I'm, I'm so okay. have I. So. Well, there you go. Well, we're, we're, yeah. I need something good company, Stephanie. It's a common thing. You grew up in Yorkshire, and now we find you as a staple of Australian science astronomy. How did you end up in Australia, and what brought you to Australia? Astronomy. <laughs> It's <laughs> absolutely what brought me here. But um, there's a little bit more to the story than that. Um, and you're quite right, I did grow up in Yorkshire on the edge of an industrial city. Fortunately, it was the nicer edge of the industrial city. Uh, and um, actually, that, I always credit, you know, um, where I grew up with my interest in astronomy because, uh, in fact, I was, I was born in a house and, and lived for my through my childhood in a house that had a view to die for, literally. Oh. It was in Cemetery Road. So, uh, there's a lovely view over the cemetery, which was enchanting in its own way. But beyond that, there were open hills and valleys, which uh, always interested me. And I always wanted to see a bit more of what was out there. And that's why I got fascinated with telescopes. I just, you know yearn to have binoculars and telescopes and things, even as a, a, a young kid. Uh, and that evolved into an interest in astronomy that took me to university, uh, took me to uh, my first proper job in astronomy, which was uh, working for the company in the UK that actually built the telescope that I later became astronomer in charge of, uh, the Anglo-Australian telescope outside uh, Spring Observatory in New South Wales. So this was a company... Uh, with the marvellous name of Sir Howard Grubb Parsons and Company <laughs> Limited, uh, which oh, no one Grubb Parsons. Yeah, so they built. That oh, that the, the Grubb part of that built your uh, Great Melbourne Telescope back in eighteen. Yes, certainly did. Yes. And interestingly, I worked for the company exactly a hundred years later, but a lot of what they did was still the same uh, <laughs> as when they built the Great Melbourne Telescope back in the eighteen sixty. And in fact, it, it, that sort of thing was a challenge because I, my job, uh, part of my job was actually working 
on a, an ultraviolet telescope that was being built for a spacecraft, which rejoiced mm. in the name of TD-1. Uh, and eventually it flew in 1972. But um, when you build optics for a space telescope, you're measuring things in grams. Whereas when you build a Great Melbourne or any other telescope, you're measuring things in tons and tens of tons. And and that transition was something that Grubb Parsons really didn't manage to make, which is very sad. So they're no longer in existence. Anyway, that was my first job. Then I went back to the <laughs> Masters in Economy. Uh, worked on asteroid orbits. Then I worked on planetary orbits at the Royal Greenwich Observatory for three and a half years. Then I went to the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh and worked on star orbits around uh, the centre of our galaxy. You can see the trend mm. here. It's all orbits. Yeah. Are getting um, and that's what actually brought me to Australia, to get back to your question, Mark. Um, yeah. well, that's good, isn't it? It's a question, Mark. <laughs> we got there. We, we got there eventually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, the... Bottom line is uh, that uh, the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, where I worked, which of course is in Scotland, uh, in fact, that's where I was educated as well, uh, that that uh, had an outstation at that time uh, called the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, which was at Siding Spring Observatory near Coonabarabran in northwestern South Wales. And staff astronomers from the Royal Observatory Edinburgh basically sent out there on three-year tours of duty uh, to work and live and become uh, well-rounded astronomers. That was that took place 40 years ago, not actually uh, last month, 40 wow. years ago, October 1982 is when I came to live in Australia. And you can see, you know, I've got such a strong Australian accent now after all that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, anyway, that, that's the story, the long and short of the story. I did go back to the UK after 10 years. The, the reason why it's, it, you know, the reason why three years stretched into 40 uh, was because the project I was working on turned out to be really important and uh, was, you know, snapped up by astronomers worldwide, as it still has been, the use of optical fibres in uh, big telescopes. So that that's what got me here, in a nutshell. <laughs> At the end of it, then. We're done. Yeah, we're finished yes, now. No, yeah. When you're talking about Siding Springs, that's the first place I saw you live. Was was the 2016 um, open day for the Astro Fest up there, um, Science in the Pub, and you were on the panel at the up top. <laughs> it was a pretty funny panel. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I was going to say I haven't been to Siding Springs for five years. I think. And I miss it very much. It's a very special place up there. <laughs> That's not a question, though. Um, my question is, so you've been known to say that you spent so many years working on large telescope domes that you've started to look like one. Mark wrote that. I didn't <laughs> write that. Uh, in my research, I found a quote from Fred where he actually says that. <laughs> <laughs> I um, someone's just said that you said that quote. But I'm really interested to hear your answer to this question because I had a conversation, a spirited conversation earlier today at ScienceWorks with some colleagues there about no one finds telescopes interesting. They find what we can see with telescopes interesting. But I want to know, what are the most interesting telescopes you've had the honour of using through your career, Fred? Oh, gosh. Uh, so, I mean, Grubb Parsons, the company that I mentioned a few minutes ago, they, uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, built three of what remain the finest four-metre-class telescopes in the world, uh, the 3.9-metre Anglo-Australian telescope here in Australia, the 3.8-metre uh, um, 
United Kingdom Infrared Telescope on Mauna oh, Kea, yeah, yeah. Hawaii, yeah. and the 4.2 meter, J, uh, sorry, William Herschel Telescope, which is on the island of La Palma uh, in the Canary Islands. And I, I've actually used all of them uh, mm -hmm. for different things. Um, the AAT, of course, as astronomer in charge, which I was from 1995 to about 2015. Um, I, I used it in a lot of different modes for my research and, and, and servicing other people's research. Uh, the UKIRT one was really interesting. Uh, so I used that for uh, measuring the infrared magnitudes or brightnesses of a class of variable star that I used to work on called RLIRI variables, which are important variable brightness stars. Um, that this was a long time ago, uh, and I was youthful and fit, but uh, I still had the problem that many astronomers had observing on the summit of Mauna Kea, which is staying awake at night, because mm -hmm. the altitude there, it's uh, 14,000 feet or 4.2 kilometres above sea level, and um, it, that, that, you know, dearth of oxygen it was enough to make it a very hard job, <laughs> even yeah. though the data were riveting that stuff. Okay. And of course, it's one of the finest sites for astronomy in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, so that was that was interesting. Uh, and La Palma, I, I was actually an instrument scientist by then. I was building fiber optic instruments uh, along with many other people, but I was project scientist for something called WIFOS, the Wide Field Fiber Optic Spectrograph on that William Herschel telescope. So a lot of what I did was commissioning instruments. And that that's always a tough job because you're trying to uh, add a, some new gizmo device that you put on it built for a telescope you're adding it to the telescope to try and make these two entities work together uh, and often there are interesting disparities between them especially when you're talking about the computer controls between the two they often don't talk to one another they sort of fold their arms and say nap uh, and so uh, uh, commissioning is, is a, always an arduous job. Uh, but nevertheless, I got through it and um, lived to tell the tale. So I, I guess those three telescopes are the ones that have imprinted themselves most on my mind. And are probably the biggest telescopes I've used. I have never ventured into the world of the eight-metre class telescopes. Uh, it is a terrifying world. I I've only been to Mauna Kea, um, the summit once uh, after a Keck observing trip. Um, and that was when I was a master's student <laughs> and yeah. my supervisor was like, every second costs us like $10 or something. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, yeah, we'll keep no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. And then of course two o'clock you fall asleep. Um, but I was running around the summit like I was tipsy or something. Um, mm. And my supervisor was very worried because like, <laughs> and one woman did faint while we were up there as well. So fortunately that happens surprised. pretty often and they, they were just like, okay, yep, <laughs> we'll get her up. <laughs> But what a great place to observe. Did you see uh, you know, sunsets and things of that sort just to watch them? Yeah, come not from the summit, um, but I have this big memory yeah. of just like looking around and seeing Mauna Loa there, like yeah. just like stretching over the entire horizon. It's mm. amazing. <laughs> you sort of think so, like if you could be on Mars and Olympus Mons would be easier yeah, somehow. Right. <laughs> yeah. When you observe with the Keck, are you observing yeah. uh, remotely? Uh, from so they got a place in Waimea, haven't they? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so we observed from Waimea, um, and then yeah, it was all um, remote from there. But then they're generally pretty happy to take you up to the summit, um, yes, so long as you sort of, of um, yeah. tell them in advance. But even 
So the first time I observed, even the support staff was still up on the summit, but I think a few years ago they brought them all down too. So now it's all basically completely remote, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's right. In the early days of um, yeah. uh, which is when I used to observe that, it was all done at the summit. And yeah. a few people could actually routinely work up there just because yeah, it's... Yeah, I don't think I could. <laughs> Just on the, the telescopes, this is like an added question because you talk about your, the favourite ones you've worked on. Are there any that you've wanted to work on but haven't had the opportunity? Like, Is there a, uh, a dream telescope, Hubble and James Webb aside, I'd say, but is there another any other telescope that's about at the moment or coming online soon that you would love to work on? I've got two answers to that, actually. Um, and, and one is the, um, the answer as given by the the 2022 Fred Watson, and the other is the answer that would have been given by the 1962 Fred Watson, um, because uh, there was a telescope that um, I found in a book. Which, uh, oh, we're going book hunting. Oh, I like this. <laughs> yeah. History of the Telescope. This is the the textbook until I wrote my History of the Telescope. Uh. <laughs> in this book, there are two. Uh, engravings of the Great Melbourne Telescope. Honestly, um, I was captivated, and, and I'm talking about 60 years ago now. The, the idea of observing with that telescope uh, filled me with uh, excitement. Now, I didn't know that it had long gone and been moved <laughs> to Mount Stromlo, and in fact, uh, it was sold for scrap. Uh, 1944, it was sold there. Yeah. You know, it was only <laughs> later in life that I realised that uh, a telescope which I knew at Mount Stromlo was the Great Melbourne <laughs> in the sky. Um, so, after, you know, after the fire uh, in 20, uh, 2003 at Mount Stromlo, when that telescope was effectively wiped out, I thought that's the end of the story. It's, uh, it's, I'll never observe with this telescope. But um, I still have aspirations to work with it because I've been quite closely involved. I'm very honoured to say, in fact, I think I'm its patron, uh, with the project to restore the um, the Great Melbourne Telescope and look forward to one day clapping my eye to the eyepiece as the 17-year-old Fred Watson wanted to do, you know, remembering what happened to it in 2003. Yeah. Amazing progress that's yeah. been made. It's taken a long time. Uh, and so the other half of my answer is the 2022 Fred Watson very much observe with uh, the ESO uh, ELT, which is a 39.3 metre telescope that's being currently built on the summit of a mountain called Cerro Amazones uh, in northern Chile. And that will be the biggest optical telescope in the world. Wouldn't that be a thrill yes. to observe that? Whew. I'm yep. jealous now. I've only, got ac- I've only got access to a 40-inch telescope. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one we've got at our dark sky site, and it's a mm-hmm. cracking telescope to use. It's really good, but it's not thirty-nine meters. <laughs> yeah. so, do you have any? Um, do you have any insight into how construction of that is going, Fred? The the ELT. Yeah, so it is. It's slower than expected, and a lot of that's due to the consequences of the pandemic yeah. uh, like the fact that you know the engineers that were involved with it and um, basically got laid off at, uh, mm. for the various contractors who were working with it yeah. uh, but um, I know that the foundations uh, on Sarah Amazonis are in place um, yeah. I might just put in a plug as well for, yeah, for um, an event so the 
that telescope will be operated by, in fact, it's originated and operated by the European Southern Observatory, with which we in Australia have a strategic partnership. So we're partner uh, countries for, for, for Europe. Um, and at the end of this month, actually, there is a very senior delegation coming from the European Southern Observatory, including its Director General, uh, Professor Xavier Barcon. Uh, and they're going to do talks and things around Australia. Sadly, they're not coming to Melbourne, uh, but we, we, we get them on air to, to broadcast yes. on, uh, on the ABC and things like that. Uh, and we hope that we'll hear a lot more about how things are going with the uh, with the yes. ELT. It's a marvel. First emerged actually around about the year two thousand, a little bit before, with the idea of building the world's biggest optical telescope ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, with yeah. a mirror uh, that was going to be 100 metres in diameter. And that was, <laughs> that was going to be called Owl, because it, not, Owl was large. That's right. Until they realised it had an overwhelmingly large price tag as well. Mm. Uh, and so it came down to 39.3 metres. Uh, but it'll still be a marvellous facility when it gets mm. going. And, and knowing what ESO is like, they are mm. they are superb at building instruments that, you know that really wipe the floor with anything else Uh, and so it will be marvellous to see what comes from it but my chances of actually using the ELT (laughs) are formally zero they're zilch (laughs) well it's it's a a thousand percent more than my chances so (laughs) not sure about that actually you've probably got longer than me Mark you never know No, I'm not in the right field. Not, 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 not me. Changing topic a bit. Astronomer at large. How does one become the astronomer at large, and what are the benefits to science and astronomy to have someone like you in that role? Um, you're kind of asking me to blow my own trumpet there. I absolutely <laughs> am. Yes, perfectly happy to do. I usually play the guitar, but trumpet I can manage. Um, so it emerged because, well. All right, let's set the scene. For 20 years, I was the astronomer in charge of the National Observatory. And um, in that role, uh, which was actually a kind of management and science role, I did a lot of science. I was project manager for various uh, surveys and things of that sort. But I also found myself uh, talking a lot to the media because uh, the media liked the idea of an astronomer in charge. Sort of, it, anyway, for whatever reason. Um, so, so that became a big part of my job. And uh, in 2018, uh, uh, and this is part and parcel of the deal that secured Australia's strategic partnership with ESO, the European Southern Observatory. Uh, in 2018, the uh, the domestic observatory at Siding Spring, the what was the Australian Astronomical Observatory, stopped being the Australian Astronomical Observatory and, and basically uh, was taken over by the university sector. So uh, a consortium of 11 universities, which does include Swinburne, uh, are responsible for funding and uh, operating that telescope. The actual operations are, are run by the ANU. So the former staff who were government employees uh, basically were transferred over to the university sector with one exception, and that was me, um, because I I said I don't want to be stealing other people's jobs who are far more valuable than I am. Uh, I would like to stay with the government sector, if I may, because I think I still have a role in um, astronomy outreach, in advocacy, and and perhaps in feeding 
astronomy type information to the yeah. government, which is, you know, actually <laughs> what the job description is. Um, and so they like that idea. And so uh, I am still in that role uh, four years later. Uh, so it was actually um, my then Uber boss, whose job, uh, whose name was, well, still is Jane Urquhart. Uh, she <laughs> suggested, you know, they looked around for a new title. Uh, and government astronomer had already been taken because the old state observatories had a government astronomer. So, oh. um, so they, they recognised that having been astronomer in charge, if they made me astronomer at large, you'd only need to change four letters on the office door <laughs> to the other. Uh, it didn't seem to occur to any of us that it was actually a different office, but that's all right. Uh, but it was the then Minister of Science, who loved the idea, uh, Karen Andrews, Minister Andrews, she... Uh, kind of dubbed me the astronomer at large. We had a re really nice um, little ceremony, a tiny ceremony, uh, and that kind of thing came about. But as I said, so that the main issue, the main roles are getting astronomy into people's minds, whether they're school kids or whether they're you know just ordinary members of the public, whether they're politicians, uh, and talk to anybody about it and try and make sure. It's at a level that people can get hold of and get some of the excitement yeah. that we feel as astronomers. Uh, and you know, we 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 all of us uh, live our lives in a state of total excitement. Mm -hmm. What's going yes. on? Uh, and to try and get some of that over into the public purview is part of it. But the other half is, as I've said, it's um, so the Department of Industry, Science and Resources, which is the department within which I work, uh, consists of two thousand government grown-ups and one astronomer. So the government, the government <laughs> don't actually know anything about astronomy, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, I do. So I can feed into some of the decision-making processes that go on within the government, and yeah. and try and you know represent the views of the of the nation's astronomers as well. What sort of advocacy does your role um, need? Um, you know, is it more like uh, funding? Perhaps I can, you know, quote an example um, in that. Uh, and it, again, it relates to ESO, to the European Southern Observatory. Mm -hmm. um, I, I perhaps should mention that uh, the little group within which I work has responsibilities for many of the major facilities that uh, astronomers use, uh, the, the upcoming ones, most notably the Square Kilometre Array, uh, which will be the world's biggest radio telescope when it's built in Southern Africa and in Western Australia. Um, also, we have... and. This came partly through Swinburne, actually, but also through the ANU. We have a vested interest in something called the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is another another of these ELTs with a, mm -hmm. a rather special set of seven mirrors, which con constitute something uh, 23 metres in diameter. Yeah. Uh, amazing piece of equipment. That's also being built in northern Chile. Uh, and again, the foundations of that are well in place. I saw that a few years ago. Uh, so, and the, but the other one, um, as well as the Anglo-Australian telescope, which we still own as a, as a government at Siding Spring, uh, the other one is the ESO, the European Southern Observatory St Strategic Partnership. Now, that was signed off on in 2017, um, and it's 10 years. So it means we're actually now halfway through this deal. Um, and, you know, the question is, what comes after it? And from ESO's perspective... What comes after it is Australia applying for full membership of yes. the European Southern Observatory, which we are allowed to do. Yeah, um, is this kind of like um, Eurovision? <laughs> they just let Australia in. In, 
infinitely more glamorous than Europe. Even though we're not European. <laughs> <laughs> though we're not European. No. We, we don't can stay that. up quite as late as the Eurovision fans. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So, so um, you know, yes, it's right. But if we had full membership, then we would have, as of right, access to things like the Europe, the ELT, the, this extremely large telescope, which at the moment we don't. Uh, mainly because it's not built yet. But even if it was, we still wouldn't have access to it. Yes, yes. So um, that is the um, the aspiration of all of Australia's astronomers. And it's actually locked in their decadal plan. They yes. It's very well-organised. Australian astronomy has a decadal plan. Every 10 years they rewrite that. But it's been uppermost on the last two decadal plans for full membership of ESO. The only thing is that's rather expensive. It costs a lot of money to do that. And so the advocacy comes about in trying to get the message out to not only decision makers, but the general public who might influence the decision makers. So it's a question of advocating for, for example, Australia's full membership of ESO. Uh, and uh, that's a thing very close to my heart because I think it's very important that we do. I actually fear for... Australia's optical astronomy effort if we don't get full membership of ESO. Um, you know, if for some reason the, the funding simply wasn't available for that, that would, uh, as one of my colleagues said, it would put Australian optical astronomy back 50 years uh, to the time before the Anglo-Australian telescope. Do you see, um, so the, the AAO no longer exists, the Anglo, uh, sorry, Australian Astronomical Observatory, because the funding for that went into the ESO deal. Uh, yes, this is this is all technical stuff for people who are not astronomers. I apologise, dear listeners. But um, <laughs> so no, but they want to know this stuff. Our listeners, are, yeah. They, they, well, I want to know. That's why I'm I'm picking Fred's brain. So, so, <laughs> so if um if we no longer had a, a D, an ESO deal after 2022, do you see that money just disappearing, or would we look to rebuild something? Here in Australia, it's not even that, Steffi. The money, yeah. the money is not there. So what happened yeah. back in 2017 is uh, there was a, you know, a, an approval from Treasury to put it. Actually, 129 million dollars was yeah. the sum, yeah. and what that does is gives us 10 years of this strategic partnership. But in 2017, that simply disappears. It simply vanishes. So for anything that might follow that, you've got to put in a new a new bid. Yeah. And that's yeah. in fact what we're working on within the mm -hmm. department. And it's one reason why we're so anxious that this visit by all the ESO top brass at the end of yeah. this month would go so well, because we want mm -hmm. to showcase what potential yes. there is in full membership of ESO. Uh, yeah. And I, my feeling is it will go swimmingly. Um, I hope yeah. it does. I'm deeply involved sure. in I don't want to leave uh, hanging my head in shame, uh, but um, you know, I, I think it's a it's a time to be excited about the the possibilities that in five yeah. years' time we might be we might be putting our hands up as as shiny brand new members of the European. Yeah. That would be very exciting. Yeah, uh, it, that's right. Industry, uh, by which I mean the facilities within Australia that can build optical instruments and can build bits and pieces of telescopes and things like that. That's one of the reasons why we think this membership deal will be so good because it would yeah. actually stimulate Australian industry and give them a vehicle to, to put Australian products onto telescopes overseas and things. Like that. Well, speaking of developing 
instruments. Can you tell us about your involvement in the use of fiber optics in astronomy during the 1980s and what the benefits of using fiber optics in astronomy are? Well, um, back, back around. <laughs> how is that for a segue? <laughs> I, I love the opportunity to talk about this stuff because mm -hmm. it, again, is something very close to my heart. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's, um, it goes back uh, to 1979, in fact, uh, when uh, I wasn't involved at that time. I was working at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh on um, the idea of measuring the velocities of many, many stars, these RLI variables I mentioned earlier, uh, around the centre of our galaxy. Now, uh, you know, Steffi, and you know Mark too, but some of your listeners might not know, that you can measure the speed of a star towards or away from you by looking at its spectrum. You I just like I, I just like the fact that you're assuming that I know. I, I'm Maybe you're being polite, Mark. This podcast is the five-year-old astronomer, so you have to talk to me as if I don't know anything. So that's what I'm about to <laughs> the do. The assumption Mark. that I know is good. It makes me feel smart. Yeah. Um, so you know, we we can we can split the light of a star or any other object uh, up into a rainbow of colours which magically we find is crossed by this kind of barcode of information, uh, which reveals all the intimate details of the star or galaxy or whatever it is. But one of those details is the speed along the line of sight, what we call in technical terms, the radial velocity. Uh, and so that velocity is what I was after when I was working back in the late 1970s on, uh, on um, uh, these particular stars. And in fact, in, was it 78 was my first visit here to Australia to use the Anglo-Australian telescope to measure some of these star radial velocities. Uh, these are stars clustering around the centre of our galaxy. So I was interested in finding out how they moved. Uh, and back in those days, if you wanted to measure the spectrum of a star and hence its velocity, you, you basically had to do it one star at a time. Uh, and that was what I did. So came in 1978. Actually, I didn't measure any stars in 1978 because my entire run on the telescope was wiped out by bad weather, as it was the following <laughs> year and the year after. It was but a disaster. 78 wasn't the bad weather. It was the year I was born, and I must have caused some kind of massive magnetic <laughs> storm or something. Could have been that. Could have been been that. That. I did notice something funny going on, actually, while I was there that year, I have to say. It had to have been the impact of me being born and everybody <laughs> freaking out. What really freaked them out was all the rain. They called me Fred the Farmer's Friend because every time I came, <laughs> you, you had to do it one at a time. And I think my first successful observing room, which wasn't until 1980, I think we got 20 stars or something. And I wanted hundreds. Um, yeah. And that's where this trick of using optical fibres helps you. Uh, and it was actually thought of by... Uh, 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 an English-born American astronomer by the name of Roger Angel uh, in, in uh, Arizona, uh, the idea of using optical fibres, which look a bit like guitar strings, but they have this property that if you put light in at one end, it comes out almost uninhibited at the other end. And so the idea is to get lots of these fibres and line them up with your target stars and then bring them all back to device we call the spectrograph which turns that light into a rainbow and gives you the the spectrum lines that you're looking for these these barcode information and hence the velocity and so that um, was pioneered actually at arizona but it was turned into an industry here in australia by um, a colleague of mine at the anglo-australian telescope i was then working at the uk schmidt telescope my colleague at the anglo-australian telescope a young 
engineer by the name of Peter Gray, later went on to great things in actually various observatories, including ESO and Keck, I think, too. Um, Peter and I basically took this idea and turned it into something that you could use for real on yeah. telescopes. And so I built the first wide field uh, multi-fiber spectrograph. So what we did was lined up fibers in the focus of the UK Schmidt telescope, which had a field of view, an angle of view of six and a half degrees, very wide angle. That way we could measure the speeds of well, for me, it was 40 stars at a time, mm -hmm. uh, but eventually it became thousands, uh, as we are now doing with some of the equipment that's being built today. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the start of all that. And I feel uh, both humbled and proud to have been in right at the beginning, uh, mm -hmm. built some of the, you know, the, the world's first uh, equipment in this, of this type, because it now has become a big industry. Um, and it's what kept me. It's why my three-year tour of duty turned mm -hmm. first of all into 10 years and eventually into permanent. It must have been pretty impressive to go from like no stars to 20 and going, I want more to all of a sudden to 40 yeah. a day. Was it 40 a day? Is that what you're saying? It was, yes. Yeah, and then to thousands. It's not usually, but that's right. So thousands is what they do today. The, the workhorse mm -hmm. instrument on the Anglo-Australian telescope is something called 2DF, which stands for two-degree field. Uh, I always thought it was a rubbish name because I gave much <laughs> instruments i built my first one <laughs> on the schmidt was the was the fiber linked array imagery formatter which is flare flm uh, like and that. then i upgraded it to be a wider field instrument and that was panache which was panoramic area flare panache we should make the mark three version finesse <laughs> eventually we built the robotic version which was 60f mm. 60 yeah that did so, many great surveys of, of uh, both galaxies and stars uh, my first observing room was at the AAT um, using 2DF with SkyMapper team okay. <laughs> so um, this was a long time ago when SkyMapper was still vibrating everywhere but then also so I met the planetarium in Melbourne um, and we have a, a show my favorite show is the one where we basically go from the surface of the earth all the way out to the cosmic macro background um, and as part of that we get to talk about galaxies and I did do galaxies for my PhD, so I'm always excited to talk about that. And we talk about some of the early galaxy surveys, which, as you were saying, sort of you could do one galaxy at a time. So maybe you get 12 galaxies a night, and it takes a long time to get thousands of them. And then suddenly you've got the, the 2DF um, galaxy retro survey and uh, 6, um, 6DF, and you can do, you know, so 2DF does 400 objects at a time and you've just increased your efficiency so much and you see like all the points come up for the, the 2DF galaxy survey and it's just amazing seeing like how much further you could suddenly see with this amazing instrument. <laughs> Explain to um, your listeners what a redshift gives you. Perhaps so for a galaxy, yes. if you do yeah. this velocity trick, what it's actually telling you is the distance of the galaxy. So it yeah. means you can plot these galaxies in three-dimensional space, which is mm -hmm. Incredible thing to do, mm -hmm. um, and the CDF survey was one of the first big ones, really. Yeah, I think it was Swinburne that did a marvelous fly through of the uh, of the yeah, the Swinburne uh, astronomy productions. Um, I still use that video. You get basically this the same thing that I've been talking about, um, but it also includes the Sloan data. So, Sloan was a telescope that was basically devoted to using fiber. I think fiber, Fred can correct me, <laughs> using fiber optics too, to get galaxies yeah. just every night for years and years and years and got millions of galaxies. So anyway, is it my question now? No, you asked your question. No, I asked my question. I want to talk yeah. about fiber optics. <laughs> so. No. 
No, we can't. We can't do that. We're going to move on to the next question because the next question is all about me. Before we leave, <laughs> let me just add one question. Yes, and yes please. Is, you know, with with a fibre, what you're doing is you're constraining light in a tiny glass sliver, mm-hmm. a tenth of a millimetre in diameter. Uh, I used to hold them in my hand when I, when the telescope was tracking galaxies and think there's ancient light pulsating through my fingers here it's quite a romantic thing to do in the middle of the night when you're on your own it's what happens but um the, what i was going to say was this whole area has now advanced in a way that i didn't foresee back in the early 1980s into what we call astrophotonics where you're using really sophisticated waveguide devices to um well one of the things you can do is within the fiber you can filter out the sort of light that you don't want that comes from the the night sky itself you can actually filter that out in the fiber Uh, and there are other really clever things that you can do Uh, here in sydney we've got um, scientists both at macquarie university and sydney university who are working on this stuff and it is just brilliant it it really um, excites me as to what we might be able to do in the future with this kind of thing one thing i wanted to ask you fred while we have you so when I'm doing spectroscopy of galaxies, one thing I want is if you have a slit and you take a spectrum, you get a little bit of the spatial sort of distribution of light in the galaxy. Do you get that with fiber optics as well, or does the light get sort of a bit mixed up as it's coming through? Well, the only way you can do it is by exactly what you've talked about, the SAMI, yeah. where you've got a bundle yeah. of basically you collect light from yeah. the whole galaxy, and then you can yeah. analyze it uh, cleverly. But you can't write with a slit, you do, you do get yeah. the of the galaxy almost or, or the, the rotation of the galaxy sometimes you get just by looking at what yeah so, anyway mark it's all about you anyway mark it's about right. me all right come on back to me um as a fellow advocate for public outreach and astronomy and i'm a big advocate for it um what tips can you give me in how i approach my love of sharing astronomy with the public and can you tell me what it is about outreach that drives you to continue to do it and what i mean by that is um, I've held a theory for a long time that the sky belongs to everyone and that yeah. those who can't afford telescopes to look at the sky or the opportunity to learn to look at the sky have as much right to share the night sky as the rest of us do. Very similar to the philosophy that kind of gripped me when I was a young astronomer uh, like you are. Um, I, uh, in those days, uh, near the start of my career, I was working for... <laughs> an organisation, part of the Royal Greenwich Observatory, but it was called Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Office, uh, and it was Her Majesty in those days. So it's uh, it was where what we call planetary ephemerides were worked out, you know, where planets are going to be, where asteroids are going to be, where the moon's going to be, all of this stuff, the, the nitty-gritty of how the solar system works was what we did at the Nautical Almanac Office. But we, um, we got a lot of queries from the public, uh, and I always felt uh, that since I was being paid from the public purse to do stuff that I thought was really fun, um, that it, it was important that I actually fed some of this back to the public. So I was always keen uh, to help where I could. And, and once, you've, once you've demonstrated that you're happy to pick up a phone and you know, have a conversation with somebody, then that's kind of what you do because there are so many, or there were certainly in those days, there were so many astronomers who just wanted to lock themselves up in their ivory towers and forget about the outside. They you still do. They still do. There are some who, who are like that. Yeah. I think I think it's changed an awful lot, though, Mark. Oh, it We've has. We've got some fabulous astronomy communicators in the country now who've got the same passion. You know, we're, we're fortunate to be able to do this, so we try and get it out there. So that was what started it. But 
I mean, the, the biggest tip that I can give anybody, uh, and it's not really a tip, it's kind of a, a, a basic condition of science outreach. Uh, if you don't like people, you might as well forget it. You've kind of got to <laughs> like people, and then that's the first step. If you like people, the rest is pretty easy. There was a conference that I was at recently, and I said that, and this, these were all science communicators. So if you don't like people, put your hand up. And somebody did. Uh, so I said, come and see me afterward. I think people uh, you know in your case Steffi I think mm -hmm. the public generally really respects somebody who's actually working in the field professionally if I can put it that That's, way I don't yeah between professionals because yes. I'm still an amateur as well but, <laughs> but you know if you're getting paid for doing that then that gives yeah. you a um, maybe a bit like of ground yeah 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 that, that, that um, the public respects and they, they love yeah. hearing uh, and, yeah. and especially when it's somebody really personable like you are. You know, they love that information. <laughs> they do. Oh. Uh, I, I would agree with that in, in that um, some of the most popular science communicators from a social media point of view in particular yeah. are the ones that are fun, exciting and engaging. Yeah. Um, that's the other one I've always had is you need to make, or people, doesn't matter who it is, needs to, whether you're professional or amateur, you have to make it interesting and fun and enjoyable. If it yeah. becomes almost like a uni lecture, mm. the general public will just they'll just blaze over and walk away. Yeah, um, exactly. and, it's not exciting. It's not fun. And and the the, the key uh, thing to avoid in that circumstance is using jargon. And it's mm. so easy if you're working professionally. It's yeah. very easy just to drop into you know stellar atmospheres and um, hyperfine structure and all this sort of thing that just completely goes over the head of your yeah. audience and once that happens you've lost them you've really yep. lost them so uh, jargon's a no-no for me um, which is just as well because i don't know what half these words mean now anyway at the astro talk on sunday at the dinner <laughs> was it the one thing that the attendees told me at the end of it was mm -hmm. how excited you guys were yourself sarah and yeah. all were every time a question was asked it was like who wants the mic first? You're fighting yeah. over it. <laughs> We're Paul Latsky talking as well. And Sarah Webb would be like, oh, I've got something to say. And she was literally throwing her hand up to make sure that the next question yeah. didn't come up so she could put her two cents in worth on the topic. Yeah. And just there was one thing that the, the attendees said to me was just the excitement in the faces and the voices of yeah. the scientists talking to them um, was just engaging. Even if they didn't quite understand what was being spoken about, they could get the passion clearly. I think that's really important. And, you know, it, it's something I've heard people say a lot too. It's, it's the, the, it, you know, half the, half the fun is watching the astronomers getting excited about yeah. it rather than the stuff itself, which is, yeah. that's fine, whatever it takes. Yeah, I guess on a little bit of a tangent, so you're a bit of an author, Fred. Can you tell us a bit more about what it's like to be an author and how you got into it? So I suppose it's a bit old-fashioned these days, but um, my childhood was spent actually soaking up books just like this one that I've already yeah. shown <laughs> um, you. You need to show us your ones as well. No, they're all up yeah. <laughs> So anyway, I read a lot. And, and yeah. I'm, you know, curiously, I was not that gifted in reading literature, but but non-fiction literature grabbed me. No <laughs> uh, and I still, this room's full of mostly non-fiction books. Uh, and so I guess it was natural to want to write. Uh, 
and that, and that goes back a long time. And uh, with, as with all these things, you start by writing articles. And I got invited to write articles um, for various magazines and mm-hmm. journals and things of that sort, uh, which was exciting and great. But it took me until 1995 to write my first book. Um, but it was something that I was a bit passionate about. And it might surprise you to know what it was. <laughs> uh, it's a, quite a thin book. Um, in fact, I will show you it because the title's on the front. It's about the history. It was the first book. <laughs> The first book in English about the history of binoculars. It's a very, very slender book, but um, still exists. It's not in print anymore. Um, but, and that's because um, I always loved binoculars, the idea of being able to look with both eyes at seeing something distant. I, I mentioned it right at the beginning, you know, those hills that were just out of reach of the naked eye where I grew up. Um, I never had binoculars really when I was a kid, but anyway, um, it was later on. And so I was always fascinated with them. And uh, somebody gave me a pair of binoculars that I really couldn't identify. I didn't know whether they were new or old or what they were. Um, And so I started looking for books on early binoculars and I couldn't find any. Uh, So I, I found a few articles in obscure journals uh, and it, it turned out there was one uh, book that had been written by a German author, so it was in German. Uh, and I thought, well, it, I've got to fix this. So I wrote my own, uh, which appeared, as I said, in 1995. And so that's a little potted history of binoculars. And then it went on. The next one was about the history of telescopes, uh, stargazer, the life and times of the telescope. Uh, the next one was the uh, – because I'd, by then I had regular radio shows, and many of these had um, – called talkback features so people phoned in with their questions and I used to make a note in fact I still do make a note of what questions I was being asked and so um, we did a book of questions that I'd been asked on the radio and uh, they chose one of them as the title you never get to choose your own book title it's always somebody else who does it for you Uh, so they they picked why is Uranus upside down and that's the title of the book uh, which um, you know I thought there were nicer questions in the book but uh, that's actually the, the that's always been the bestseller of the books I've written. I can tell why it's the name. Yeah. <laughs> and then the a few others came. Um, the, the one after that was actually about it mixed because um, my wife Marnie, uh, her background's in travel, uh, and we uh, used to take before COVID uh, people on tours all over the world to see where science happens, to see telescopes, to see laboratories, to see just places of history, medieval, um, you know, observatories, uh, even archaeoastronomy. Our first tour was actually to Peru to look at some uh, amazing uh, artefacts in northern uh, northern Peru uh, at Chanquillo. Anyway, uh, so that, the, the next one was a book of travels. Um, but again, it was Marnie who thought of the title of that, Star Craving Mad. Uh, which um, I always thought was very clever indeed. I, could, I can't think of stuff like that. And then there's been a couple more. The, the latest is, is, I might as well plug it, the latest is Space Warp, which is a book for the 10 to 110 year age group. People tell me it's uh, a, a kid's book for adults on astronomy. And it, it actually is, was written for me when I was 12. Uh, so that's how I did it. When they said, will you write a kid's book? I thought, how on earth do you write a kid's book? And I just basically put myself to when I was that sort of age and wrote it for me. <laughs> and um, that's probably why it hasn't sold very well, because there's, 
<laughs> Actually, I don't know. I don't know how it's done. I think it's doing okay. Start space war. Space war. Buy it from the family. Question on the future now. Where do you see astronomy going, be it land-based or space-based, and what does the future of astronomy look like to you? Uh, I have to say it looks pretty bright to me, uh, notwithstanding, you know, the travails of uh, brought along by geopolitics and mm. climate change and all the things that we, we know the Earth is facing or the world is facing uh, that are not easy to contemplate. Um, astronomy uh, is very resilient. Uh, in fact, I at the start of the pandemic, um, I, I did a talk. Uh, we, we have a talk series um, called Fred Watson Presents, and we turned them into pandemic webinars, um, cosmic relief, we call them. Uh, so um, one of my talks was about, you know, astronomy in times of crisis, and yeah. it survives. Uh, and in, indeed, our experience, and I'm sure both of you can relate to this, our experience in, in, in the pandemic is that people have got more interested in astronomy and, you know, hobby shop telescopes are, sales are booming. Uh, or t sorry, hobby telescope shop sales are booming. Uh, and people, are, I think astronomical societies are doing well. I think people have got a real interest. And it, it means for science communicators like the three of us here, uh, you've got such an opportunity to be able to promote astronomy. So, so I th just, just on so that one, Fred, when yeah, you talk about yeah. COVID and the impacts on astronomy, um, you, you're spot on in that it increased because the ASV, for instance, had... 1,400 members when lockdown hit. Mm -hmm. And then um, I convinced the guys to let us do live streams and we would live stack yeah. Yeah. every two weeks. At some points it was every week. And we would come up with different names. Um, we had cl uh, Close Encounters and we, oh, yeah, we, had, we had Gazing at the Galaxies Volume 1, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Guardians of the Galaxies. Uh, also, so we had, uh, was it... Um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to Astronomy and, you know, all these different things. And by the time lockdown had finished at the end of last year, the society had increased its membership by almost 400. That's incredible. Lockdown. And we had no yeah. no in-person public viewing nights, no, no in-person meetings. No. It was all just online live stream. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we had thousands of people watching every week we did it. And people looked forward to it. And we get such amazing comments like, you know, this is this is helping us so much through lockdown. Um, that's probably what really got me into public outreach big time was the fact that just to seeing those responses. But you're right, yeah, it, it thrived in lockdown, absolutely thrived. Yeah, so you know, in a, in a way, that's a metaphor for the bigger picture that astronomy, mm -hmm. um, it, it, because it's driven by curiosity, really. Mm -hmm. um, it, that's not actually why governments put funding into astronomy mm -hmm. but it's one of the reasons because people are curious but it's things like uh, astronomy pushing technology to its limits yeah. that's another of the reasons it's uh, it's it inspires youngsters it's a great way of getting kids into science all of that it actually builds really strong international relationships as well mm -hmm. um so it, it's a science that is the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> and that's why i'm optimistic that you know we will see well, the JWST is going to be producing good stuff for 20 years, we hope, unless there's a big micrometeorite ding on the mirror, <laughs> meteoroid. Uh, but it, so there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, and with these 
big, you know, these big ground-based facilities that are coming on stream, the square kilometer array, um, there is a celebration, um, and I don't think this is classified. I'm not sure when this podcast will go to air. Uh, but, uh, Probably next week. In that case, it's perfectly safe for me to say this. Um, there is, yeah, on Saturday, uh, which is uh, two days from when we're recording this, uh, there will be a, a ceremony uh, at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, which is in Western Australia. Yeah. And this uh, is, celebrates the uh, something called the Ilua, and the Ilua is the Indigenous Land Use Agreement. What yes. it is is a, a sort of contract between uh, the First Nations people whose land that telescope is built on, they're the uh, Wadri Yamaji people, uh, and of the Murchison region. And uh, th that's, you know, the, the, the science and everything is fine, but you need the, that First Nations basis on which to build uh, this this work. And, and so that uh, it's been a long time coming, but that agreement will be signed on Saturday. And it's a big step forward in the square kilometre arrays, um, you know, journey to reality, which yeah. is starting now. Uh, and just to give people an idea of what this telescope is, the Australian component of it is the low frequency component. Australian radio astronomers are great at low frequency astronomy. Uh, and it consists of not dishes, actually. We all think of radio telescopes as dishes, but these are antennas, isn't it? Yeah, they're antennas. They look exactly like big Christmas trees made out of metal. <laughs> And there are 132,000 of them, uh, and that makes this telescope. They're, they're joined electronically, uh, and so you can steer the telescope electronically. It's a marvellous system. Uh, the other half of it in southern Africa, in South Africa, actually does have dishes. So that's going to tell us the most extraordinary things about, well, the, the early universe, the, the universe in the millennia after the Big Bang, when nothing was shining, what we call the Dark Ages, uh, only the remnants of the Big Bang were shining, but there were no stars. Uh, and so the idea is to probe that region because you can you can measure and map uh, where the cold hydrogen was at that early era in the universe, remembering, as we all do in science communication, that the further you look out into space, the further back in time you're looking because of the finite speed of light and radio waves. And so we look far enough uh, in space, we see right back to the almost the beginning of the universe. And the SKA will be the, a great facility for that, as well as, you know, more nearby stuff, like looking at the, um, at the molecular makeup of clouds of dust in the, uh, in the region where stars are being formed and things of that sort. So it, 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 um, uh, the one, one little factoid that I love is that the square kilometre array will be capable of picking up an airport radar at 50 light years. Uh, so that means, you know, if there's some alien dude somewhere who turns on an airport radar within the beam of the square kilometre array, it could be detected. Talking about pushing the boundaries of technology in astronomy, that's exactly what I do. Like I was saying to you earlier, that for me it's all about getting people into astronomy yeah. in any way you can and not everyone can afford um, all of that fancy equipment. And so I'll share an image. I want you to have a look at it. Um, is it going to come up? There Ooh. it is. There it is. So you know what that is. I do. Yeah. Um, I remember that well. Do you know that that was taken using a using? Where is it? Here we go. An eighty mil telescope 
and this. And this well, that phone, isn't that fabulous? Is that? Uh, tell me what kind of phone that is. That's a Google Pixel Five. Okay, yeah. So state of the art, well, it's, it's astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing. That is so similar to the original David Malin image of the Orion <laughs> Nebula taken with the Anglo-Australian telescope in the 1970s. Um, if I may make a comment, Mark, um, mm. you had uh, greasy finger marks on the on the lens glass. Um, <laughs> Because you can tell by looking at those star images. I know. Yeah. Big spike that's not meant to Big be there. Big spike, it should be there, yeah. I've, yeah. I've noticed the same thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely know that there. that was the case. But it was 1 a.m. on Saturday night, and I had had a few beers. It's um, fabulous. That is a fabulous image. And you are pushing technology and doing that. It's great. Yeah, and, and, that's, really great. And, and that's the thing. Like, everybody's got a phone. What, um, what sort of exposure was that? Just uh, that is, for a minute. That is 120 30 second exposure. Right, okay. It's, so, no, 90 30 second exposure. That's 45 minutes. Yeah, so so that was, uh, you must have had the phone clicked onto the back end of the yeah, telescope. Yeah, but it's yeah. only a, like a $30 phone adapter that you can get from like yeah, Intel and, and that. Yeah, so it's That's brilliant. Um, so, yeah, pushing boundaries and showing people that you don't need a lot of money to get excited and interested in astronomy and push those boundaries and have a go. That, yeah, that's fantastic. And um, I, I, I love the idea of, uh, which we've done in the professional field as well, In you know, it's almost rigging things up um, in, a, in a makeshift fashion because that's <laughs> what works. Uh, yeah. Almost, I mean, the first fibre optic systems I've built were exactly like that. They were <laughs> hung together with sticky tape and... My tripod's yeah. a bit like that. I broke the middle bit, so I found some old aluminium offcuts and I created, cut and put, bolted together my own um, <laughs> centrepiece to hold the tripod open so it didn't move too much. But that, everything I do is all about what's the most cost-effective cost way I can do it yeah. so I don't have a lot of money to spend on telescope yeah. equipment. And Great so stuff. Forgive me, but it, it's uh, it's one of the reasons. Again, it comes down to why you fund astronomy. That camera that you've got in your eye, in your phone, there, um, it, the the sensors in that started their life back in the nineteen eighties on the on the business end of telescopes. It was driven by astronomy, so yeah. uh, that's astronomy pushing technology and creating <laughs> you know creating new new ideas. It's, oh, it's a big yeah. circle, isn't it? It's astronomy circle, pushing. Yeah. We're up to our last question, Stephanie, and then we've got the quiz. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a funny way to say this. So hopefully, <laughs> get ready, get ready. <laughs> okay, so Fred, when you are not the astronomer at large, when you are the astronomer at small, uh, what do you <laughs> The do? astronomer at home. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm not funny one, Mark. It's my turn. <laughs> so, okay. um, what do you like to do when you're not running around the country working and talking about astronomy and advocating and all those sorts of things? It's hard to stop, actually. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I see your question is a good one. Um, and I guess uh, the other great love in my life, apart from my family, uh, of whom I'm incredibly proud, I have to say, um, um, I, I might put in a plug for one of them who's an award-winning I think novelist. I know which one. Yeah, the other ones who's a flight attendant at Virgin. Yeah. It's fabulous stuff. So, so that's they—they they make me very happy and very proud. Um, but the the other thing is music, and it and it always has been. Um, so uh, you might not be able to see it, but I think I'm—I think I am the only astronomer in Australia. 
professional astronomer in Australia, there's won an APRA Music Award. It's oh, actually wow. on, the, on the wall there behind. Oh, wow. um, and um, that was actually a bit of a swizz because it's not for the music that I won it. It was for the words <laughs> that were set to music. So I've got a very good friend, a very old friend. Ross Edwards is his name. He's a classical composer. Classical music has, has been my mainstay for decades and decades. And we've collaborated together on some of his works. And in particular, back in 2002, uh, he completed a, his fourth symphony, which is a setting for orchestra and two choirs of words that I wrote. So I wrote what's called the libretto, the, the words for it. And it's actually a musical journey through the sky. It's called Star Chant. And it starts off with the stars of the plough, the, the Ursa Major that skirt our northern horizons in the northern part of Australia and winds up with Sigma Octantis. Uh, but it's not just the Western constellations and star names, it's the First Nations people's names as well, with many Aboriginal names scattered through it. Uh, and it won, actually, well, the ABC CD of the performance of that won this APRA award, uh, the best choral work of... 2008 so I'm very <laughs> proud of that but but on a so I, I do a lot of listening and I really enjoy listening to music but I in the 60s and 70s I got kind of um, hooked up in making music um, and that was not classical uh, that was the idea of uh, blues and folk music which were very much in the ascendancy in those days and so for a while, I was a professional musician. Uh, the old Gibson guitar case is behind me there. It's still there. It still goes well. But um, so it was a really interesting time to be doing that stuff because it, there were new genres of music coming out and people doing things with guitars that nobody had ever thought you could do before. And I spent a lot of time becoming actually quite a creditable guitarist. I was a crap singer, but um, <laughs> that, that was fine. It didn't seem to matter in those days. Um, so, but I, I, these days either, trust me. Yeah, probably not. I um, ended up working with uh, some people who then were just youngsters up and coming but they were singing in the same clubs as I did. I was actually half of a band. Uh, the other half is still performing in Scotland. Kenny Brill, great oh. um, musician. We were called we were called the Bradford and East Fife Ready Mix Concrete Company. That was the name of the band. Um, but there was there was another band that seemed to get more gigs than we did, and they were called Humble Bums. And Scotland is where this was. In Scotland, a humble bum is actually a bumblebee. It's another word yeah. for bumblebee. But the humble bums, um, as I said, they always got more gigs, and we thought it was because they had a better name. But the <laughs> two artists in the humble bums, uh, one was Jerry Rafferty, who uh, later had a huge hit with a song called yeah. Baker Street uh, in the 1990s, an enormous I'm hit. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so Jerry, uh, and he was he was just fabulous as a musician. He he, he just made us all totally envious. But he, the other half of the Humble Bums was a fella called uh, Billy Connolly. I've no idea oh. what happened to him. <laughs> Don't know where he went. Um, oh wow! So so the, yeah, it was really interesting. It was a great time to be involved with all that stuff because mm -hmm. we were all poor, and you know, I was a student actually, <laughs> yeah. playing guitar and teaching guitar to try and make ends meet as a student um these guys were headed for stellar careers uh, particularly jerry and, and billy 
So that was that's the other great love of my life, and it still is. I get enormous pleasure from both still playing the guitar, usually only in science in the pub these days. I wrote, I did a CD a few years ago of Daft Science songs, uh, which uh, we, we we did for we did it for the um, International Year of Astronomy. Uh, I can't resist it. Can I? Uh, no, I can't resist. All good. And yeah. like you. <laughs> that was for the for the International Year of Astronomy. There is a real CD in there. With, Can you uh, find you know. this online? Can you listen to uh, it? Like I, I suspect uh, it never, because it just missed out on the, you know, I, I always thought I should have put it on, the, you know, the music cloud uh, things. I, I can say, I'll send you a track, Mark. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We might be able to use it in our podcast. Yeah, well, the best one, the, the, the one that everybody likes, which is kind of the, it's not the lead number on it, but because the lead number is an alien like you, as you can expect, <laughs> but the Galaxy Redshift Blues, which is actually about the 2DF <laughs> Redshift survey, uh, Stephanie. Oh. The, ga yeah. the Galaxy Redshift Blues is the one that everybody asks for, so I'll send you that. Mm -hmm. I, I can it. email it, just the MP3. Yes, just just yes. remind me, that's all. I will remind you because that's way too cool. Yeah. Well, it did not win an award. This didn't win an award. Well, it should have. <laughs> I love the name, the Galaxy Redshift Blues. Yeah, it's got it all, hasn't it? <laughs> We're up to the fun part now. We're up to the uh, spot quiz. Right. And being Fred with an F, I've chosen your topic, and because I know you're a light-hearted man who enjoys a good laugh, your five pop quiz questions, spot quiz questions, will be on flatulence. Very good. Yep. Very good. Now, who's that, do you remember who our leader is, Steph? You can't remember who he's. Oh, Sarah Webb. Sarah Webb. Sarah Webb on Sarah the Seeker Group. Well, I think it was four. I think it was four. Oh, she got four. <laughs> Sarah got four. She's she, incredible. She's a about she, yeah. Oh, but Bet she didn't have to answer questions on flatulence. Well, no sea cucumbers. <laughs> we, we thought we'd go really random and go sea cucumbers, and she freaked out because she's like, I know so much about sea cucumbers. Like, <laughs> How do you know That's about sea cucumbers? Nobody knows about them. Sarah knows about them. So, yes, yours is flatulence. And Good. The, the first question, so you've got five questions. Um, what year to the nearest, we'll go 100, um, was the world's oldest recorded fart joke told in? <laughs> Uh, okay, so now by recording, do you mean on paper or audio or not on audio, pre-audio, pre-audio? So my guess and is possibly pre-paper. So, oh no, you're pushing uh, it back. Uh, okay, <laughs> right. So all right, so that that rules out that hypothesis. So I, I'm going to guess uh, 100 AD. You're about. 2,000 years off. <laughs> All right. 2,000 BC. has a long history. In 2008, <laughs> researchers at England's University of Wolverhampton traced the ancient joke about a woman who may or may not have tooted in her husband's lap all the way back to 1900 BC. It was Sumerian, and the quip was something which yeah. has never occurred since time immortal. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. Oh, I see. Okay. And we're, we all roll about with laughter for that. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some cultural context so that, that we that have. That is missing. the oldest recorded fart joke. So that makes it... Uh, well, I'm delighted I've learned something tonight. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it 3,900 years old. Question number two, what is the medical term for a fart? Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad I chose this topic now. I think it's... Um, 
it's something something sort of suggested like suggestive like an, <laughs> an anal eruption or I, I mean we we have this problem that um there are you know there are many sources of farts the sun farts yeah. uh in its own sweet way and so um the medical term for that is called yeah. uh it's called a solar flare uh so I, maybe I'm maybe the medical I'm willing to give him a point for that for um, turning it around. Um, yeah. A good point. Um, so for the human body, so the gas that is produced um, in the stomach or bowels is called fl- flatus, F-L-A-T-U-S. Yeah. Um, my brain, because I played the flute, my brain is going flatus. But I think, it's, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it comes from the, same, yeah. from the same sort I mean, of uh, – um, Yeah, hence flatulence um, is a – yeah, so it comes from the yeah. Latin word. It comes from the Latin word meaning the act of blowing. So I think that's where the flute also gets its name. The first known use of the word mm. occurred in 1651 and is simply defined as gas generated in the stomach or bowels. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to to fart is to pass flatus. Very very good. <laughs> sure so remember that. So one, we gave him a bonus one, point. One so bonus mark. Bonus mark. <laughs> So now we're under question three. How many times a day, on average, does an adult fart? How many times? Yeah, on average. For the average adult, uh, that's a really (laughs) interesting question. Um, And I I might just uh, sort of set my pitch here because um, (laughs) (laughs) um, you might be interested to know that flatulence is not actually something that that – I'm afflicted with in any great way. So yeah. I'm probably <laughs> an outlier statistically uh, if I say uh, um, once. <laughs> but I would imagine for most people, uh, and I'm thinking of people I know here, <laughs> like my family, I would say 15. Oh, I'm going to be good. Yeah, yeah. Fourteen, is it? Okay. Yep. So how much squeezing <laughs> cheese is normal? Typical adults produce about two pints of gas a day, which sneaks or leaks out via an average of 14 farts a day. If that number seems <laughs> low, don't worry. Apparently it's perfectly normal to gas up to 21 times a day. That doesn't so surprise on, me. It's a very wide range. <laughs> it is a very wide range. I know some people who are up towards that 21 times a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're usually out doing astronomy and blame it on bullfrogs. Yeah. <laughs> what happens if you try to hold in a fart? <laughs> you explode, of course. It's <laughs> obvious. It's naturally what's going to happen. That's the, the, well, there you go. We've, we've, we've just solved spontaneous combustion. <laughs> yeah. I think that um, would actually be holding farting. <laughs> oh, okay. That's right. If you smoke and you, and you hold it in. I think it finds its way... <laughs> Uh, you know, it finds its way elsewhere and comes out of your ears or your nostrils. Or... That's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So if you oh, hold yeah. it for too long, the gas could be reabsorbed into your circulation yeah. system yep. uh, and could actually leak out of your mouth. And I think given that mouth, ears, nose, all connected, yeah. I yeah. am I'm willing to give that one too. Thank you. This is to tie with Sarah. Oh, look at this. So we have <laughs> Fred Watson up against Dr. Sarah Webb. Do all animals fart? Um, 
I, I, there must be animals that don't. So that means the answer must be no. And that is four out of five. It's thought that uh-huh. octopuses don't toot, nor do soft-shell clan sea enemies or birds. Sloths don't fart either. And they may, may very well be the only mammal that doesn't. Sloths might be the only... Might, they're too lazy. That's the problem. <laughs> they're too lazy, too slow. There, there you go. go. We have a tied top of the leaderboard. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, turn it round now and um, ah. ask, ask you a question about this. <laughs> um, do, do you know... Okay, how can I phrase this? Uh, who was... The most famous professional farter. Uh, Roland the Flatulist. <laughs> I'm I'm going to go with the guys from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> but I think you're nearer, Steffi. The person I'm thinking of was very well known in the 1870s. He was a French musical actor, and he called himself Le Petiment, Le Petiment, um, the farter. And he he um, could play scales. Uh, he could um, ignite things, uh, you know, sort of melt lead and things like that with uh, ignited farts. Uh, he, uh, he yeah, he became very famous. Um, so your point score, I think, is one out of one on that because Steffi, I think well, you that's were pretty not out of one. So, so why don't you add that to mine and <laughs> just, just just gives. You know, since you're not going to do anything good. else, you're not going to do anything else. <laughs> so, so, so you tell Sarah I got five out of six. And that's... Oh, here we go. We, we, we'll tell her that. She'll, she'll pro- lodge a protest. Very confused. We'll the, yeah, um... don't, don't tell her what the questions were, though. She'll be well, shocked. FIA involved. It, this is the first time that we've explored this topic on any interview that I've ever done before. Yeah. Um, so... You've you've broken new ground here. Um, <laughs> we aim, spaghettifications. We aim, we aim to, uh, to, to be fresh and new. Just as much as very good. Can. Yes. Well, now, well done. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on board. It's been amazing. Thank um, you. It's been yes, a pleasure uh, to be here. Honestly, it's been a great um, uh, hour and a half, whatever. <laughs> it led it, I know it led it down to three and a half minutes, but that's all right. It's an honour to have you. It's, it's, it's a, you're a guest that we never really thought we would, we would get, that's for sure. Um, and so I seriously thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. It's, it's been an honour to have you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Great to see you both. And let's do it again sometime. Thanks for listening and supporting us as we continue to learn on our podcast journey. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash spaghettification podcast and support us for as little as one can of beer a day. Shout out to Steve from Home Loan ZZ, Jess Stout, Paul Milvane and Andy Ladder for their ongoing support. 